Well, Warnings, Gifts, and Memories is the name and title of the message based on Acts 11, 27 to 30. And I just want to point out before we get to those verses that Acts chapter 11 is quite a chapter in the chronicling of the first 60 years of the baby church because in Acts 11 there have been some historic action recorded that was very important to the supernatural spreading of the baby church out of Jerusalem and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth, excuse me. What was reported earlier in Acts 11? Well, it was reported that the Christian flag, as it were, had been planted in Gentile country, that is Caesarea. It was reported that further, that that Christian flag even got planted on the cusp of the end of the earth, that is 300 miles north of Jerusalem in a place called Antioch. The chapter talks about that although the first protested that Gentiles could have the same spiritual blessings as Jewish believers, those Jewish believers eventually wound up accepting Gentile brethren for the short term, because remember that debate burst again in chapter 15. The Gentile church emerged strong in Antioch. The Jerusalem church sent Barnabas to Antioch church to encourage the believers who were there, and the Apostle Paul, also known as the Apostle Saul, was located by Barnabas, brought back to the church in Antioch, and there for one year, they taught the growing number of believers who were in the church of Antioch. And then chapter 11 closes with description of some interesting and instructive happenings. I'm going to read verses 27 to 30, Acts 11. And in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit, capital S, that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to their ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they did also did and sent it to the elders by hand, the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So we're going to see three things out of those short verses. Something about warnings, something about gifts, and something about memories. Let's start with warnings. Here's the point under warnings. Sometimes God warns about coming crises. Sometimes God warns us about coming crises. I see that in verse 27 through the first part of 28. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to become a great famine throughout the world. Sometimes God warns about coming crises. There were more than one prophet involved here, but the one who was the spokesperson for them all was a man named Agabus And bless his heart, he made it very clear that his prophetic prediction of a global famine was not from himself, but from the Holy Spirit who gave him the prophetic warning about a global famine. The general principle here is that there are sometimes, thank God, when God warns about coming crises, not through the office of prophet today, but through the scriptures. Sometimes God warns the church of coming crises through scripture. There are so many examples of this, God warning believers about coming crises, some in the Old Testament and some in the New. Let me just give you two examples 
Example one, God warned Joseph in Egypt that a global famine was coming soon, and he did so, the Spirit of God did so, by helping Joseph accurately interpret Pharaoh's dream. Remember that? That's Genesis 41 if you want to study it later. And Pharaoh wisely listened to Joseph, put Joseph in charge, and Joseph stockpiled food when there were good years of harvest of food in Egypt before the global famine. Yes, sometimes God warns of coming crises. Or let me give you a second example, this in the New Testament, and this a warning that has not yet come to pass, but it will. That second example is that God warns in his word that an antichrist is coming. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 12, listen. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to soon be shaken in mind or troubled, either by the spirit or by the word or by the letter, as if it's from us, as though the day of Christ had come. See, they were, in Thessalonica, they were fearful that they'd been missed in the rapture. And this is a correction. The rapture had not occurred by that point and still has not occurred by this point. Verse three, let no one deceive you by any means for that day, rapture, will not come unless the falling away comes first, apostasy. And the man of sin, Antichrist, is revealed, the son of perdition, Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself about all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God, as God, in the temple of God, in Jerusalem, I might add, showing himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. He says there's something restraining antichrist and evil. And we're going to see what's restraining antichrist and evil even this morning is you and me. The body and bride of Christ globally, the repositories, the temples of the Holy Spirit that we each are. You think things are evil now? You wait until the church is raptured and the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit taking place through our redeemed lives is taken up and out of here. It's going to be unbelievable, that tribulation. Revelation chapters 4 through 19. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is at work only. He who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. He who restrains is the Holy Spirit in dwelling born-again Christians. He'll restrain evil until he's taken out of the way through the rapture of the church. And then, after the rapture of the church and the Holy Spirit's restraining work on earth ends, and then the lawless one, Antichrist, will be revealed. This is a warning. Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. You do realize that Satan has power. His power is always inferior to God's power, but he has satanic power. And when Antichrist bursts on the scene, he will be able to do some wonders, 
miracles, but not by God's power and not for God's glory, by satanic power and for Satan's purposes. And we're out of here before that. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power signs and lying lying wonders and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish because they did not receive the the love of the truth that they might be saved. During the church age, when you gave them the gospel and they did not receive the love of the gospel of God, then that's why they're in the mess they're going to be in with Antichrist calling the shots and evil unrestrained in the tribulation. And all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they may be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth in the church age, I add, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So yeah, God in grace sometimes warns his people of impending crisis. He did in the Old Testament with Joseph and the global famine, and he's doing so for the church of Jesus Christ this morning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, warning us, keep sharing your faith, keep inviting lost people to trust the Savior, because one of these days the church is up and out of here in the twinkling of an eye. And when we are up and out of here, the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit that is ongoing currently will not be in play by God's design. And as they say, all hell will break loose. And it will be harder to get saved at that time because it says God will send a deluding spirit as a judgment. So, first point, sometimes God warns about coming crises. Second point, still under the heading of warnings. Point two is always God's warning predictions happen either sooner or later. Always God's warnings about impending crises happen, if not sooner than later. There's many examples of God's warnings being sure in Scripture. Let me give you five examples. Three have already happened and two are yet to happen. Five examples of God's warnings being sure. Number one, Judah fell into a lengthy captivity in Babylon. Jeremiah 25 warned them that they would. Number two, Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar was judged with a mental illness that caused him to live just like an animal in the wild. He was warned about that in Daniel chapter four. Number three, warning, Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. Jews were warned about that through Jesus' ministry, Matthew 24. And now how about two warnings that God has given us in his word that have not yet come to pass, but they will they will come to pass 100% guaranteed. Christ will return to the earth for the last time and plenty of persons will not be ready. Matthew 24 and 25 says that. The last warning yet future, everyone who is not redeemed will individually stand before Christ as their judge. And they will be sentenced to degrees of punishment in hell. That's Revelation 20. And so going back to Acts 11, 
Not surprising at all, the global famine which God's prophet Agabus warned about did in fact happen, verse 28b, which also happened, past tense, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So we can date this global famine that Agabus warned was coming. From the most reliable Jewish historian Josephus, this famine happened around AD 46, and then it lingered in that whole region while Claudius Caesar reigned. And that famine was so big that it wasn't just a famine of one year. It was a famine of more than one year. Serious global famine. It happened. We shouldn't be surprised. Now remember, at AD 46, when this famine kicked off to last more than one year, that certainly is within the first 60 years of the baby church. And we've been saying that the the, uh, book of Acts gives the chronicling, the story, the history of the baby church from its birth in Acts chapter 2 until the end of the book of Acts, 60 years. So within that 60-year window, AD 46 was Two-thirds into the story of the book of Acts, this global famine that Agabus was told by God to warn the believers. It happened. And so we go from warnings, the two truths about warnings, that sometimes God warns about coming crises, and always God's warning predictions happen sooner or later. We move from warnings to gifts. Verses 29 to 30. Because of the global famine that happened, Verses 29 and 30, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. The principle to draw out of those two verses I've just read is there is a God-honoring way when it comes to handling a monetary gift. There's a God-honoring way to handle a monetary gift. A wise Christian once told me, he said, Pastor Rob, pastors sometimes fall into disgrace and disqualification, and when they do, it's usually because of one of three reasons. Gold, glory, And girls. In other words, pastors can be disqualified by mishandling money, by wanting the credit belongs to God, and by compromising impurity. Now, will you please notice from 29 and 30, the following God-honoring protocols, they still are relevant for today's handling of monetary gifts within a church setting. Number one, have it be voluntary. And 29, and then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined, that's voluntary, determined, have it also be shaped by ability, verse 29a. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, gave the monetary gift to the church in Judea. Third, send the gift to more than one church leader. 30 verse A, this they also did and sent it to the elders. Send it to more than one church leader. And last, the second part of verse 30, deliver it using more than one messenger. This they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. 
So let's take this apart a little bit. What is the God-honoring way for monetary gifts still to be handled by the church of Jesus Christ? Well, number one, a monetary gift should be a voluntary gift. It should be a choice and not a tax. In verse 29, it says that each Christian determined. It was voluntary. The second thing is a monetary gift should be shaped by the abilities of those who give it. That means when we give a monetary gift to this ministry, it should be from what you have on hand. You shouldn't be going to the bank to take out a loan to give a monetary gift to this ministry. It's according to your ability, what you have on hand. Verse 29 says, according to his ability. And somehow that according to his ability also suggests that any monetary gift should have some kind of proportionality to it. The New Testament doesn't say a percentage that we should give back to the Lord. It doesn't name it on purpose because that is to be determined by the New Testament giver and God. I don't know what percentage any of you give to this ministry and I don't want to know. You don't know what percentage of my income I give back to the church and you don't need to know. It's between me and God. So the next thing, the third thing that's a timeless principle for God-honoring handling of monetary gifts is that a monetary gift should be sent to more than one church leader. The mention of elders in this passage, in this verse, is the first time the word elders appears in the book of Acts. There's no reference to elders in any um, expression of the, of the local church until right now in this passage. Verse 29. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders. First mention of that in Acts. To the elders. And so the good procedure is when we give a monetary gift to another church like we recently have for the Abaco New Vision Ministry to help them after Dorian, then it should be given to more than one church leader. By the way, the concept of elders that was first being introduced in this, this verse is later expanded in the New Testament, and they are men in local church settings who were spiritually recognizably mature. They were spiritual overseers of local churches. They're also called bishops or pastors, presbyteros in Greek. And their biblical character is 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. The elders who have been appointed for life in this assembly have been appointed because their lives measure up to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And you notice that the one church they sent it to had more than one elder. It said, sent it to the elders. That means when you look in the New Testament, there is no example of a New Testament church being overseen by one single elder. It's not there. Rather, all New Testament local churches are in, in the books of the New Testament are overseen by more than one elder. It's called the plurality of elders. It's a safeguard for each local church. 
Elders came into being when the young church transitioned from being led by apostles and prophets. The Bible teaches that the apostles and the prophets were foundational, but they did not perpetuate. God willed it that elders, pastors, would succeed the foundation of the apostles, eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection, and the prophets. And so sending the monetary gift to a group of elders whose servant led the church in Jerusalem has several benefits, like checks and balances, accountability, being above reproach, avoiding all appearance of evil, doing things decently and in order, reducing the temptation to misappropriate the funds, reducing the ability to misappropriate the funds. And the last timeless principle or protocol for handling in a God-honoring way monetary gifts is this. A monetary gift should be delivered using more than one messenger. Verse 30 says, by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. They sent both. Just like sending to more than one person, delivering by more than one person has benefits. Safety in numbers, mutual accountability, being above reproach, avoiding all appearance of evil, the gift amount confirmed at its origination and again at its delivery. So, so far we've seen warnings and gifts. We conclude in Acts eleven twenty-seven to 30 by looking at memories and I'll hasten uh, in light of time. The point here is that have memories of those who have helped you. Have memories of those who've helped you. Verse 29, it says, determined. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief. Why? They determined to send relief because they remember how the church at Jerusalem helped them as a fledging church in Antioch. How had the church in Jerusalem helped the fledging church in Antioch? Well, let me give you a couple examples. Because... Really, the church at Antioch was even in existence because of the missionary work by the church of Jerusalem. That's how the gospel even got to Antioch. And the church in Antioch was like a church plant off of the church in Jerusalem. Second, the church in Jerusalem had sent Barnabas to encourage and to help them at Antioch. And when Barnabas wasn't at the church in Jerusalem encouraging the saints there, he was in Antioch encouraging the saints there, and so would the church in uh, Jerusalem made a sacrifice of Barnabas's talents and ministry to loan him to the church at Antioch. God blessed the church of Antioch through the Jerusalem church. So the Jerusalem church was remembered by the Antioch church. They were said there's going to be a global famine through Agabus and it's going to wreak havoc on the food supply of the church in Judea and the Antioch believers said, I remember the church in Judea and all that they've done for us. I want to give a free will monetary offering because I remember they helped us. We should remember people help us. (laughs) If we step back from this and said, okay, make a list in your mind of everybody who's helped you in your life. Long list, right? Parents, school teachers, pastors, Sunday school teachers, etc. Remember those people. We should remember the persons who have helped us. We should have memories about them. And so to wrap this up, 
Sometimes God warns about coming crises, so be warned. Always God's warnings and predictions happen, so don't be surprised. There is a God-honoring way when it comes to a monetary gift, so handle it with care and have memories of those who've helped you. Let me just say, when we receive the benevolent offering in a few minutes, this is how it works. It's collected as a separate offering, so it's kept separate from the offerings for the general fund. There's a separate account for the benevolent gifts that you will give today. The two funds aren't commingled. And so the funds in the benevolence account are managed by four pastors, a subcommittee of the pastors. And when a need comes to us, we give first priority to the needs of our members and regular attendees. But sometimes, if we're led of the Lord, we can also assist those who are not members of our church and not regular attenders of our church. That's more rare. But when the four pastors agree that Sally Smith, we don't have a Sally Smith, right? Sally Smith should have a benevolence gift, we, did, we decide what the amount will be together based on the balance in the fund. And let's say the help for Sally Smith is for rent. We make the check payable to the landlord. Let's say the assistance is for electricity. We make the check out to the utility and put the Sally Smith's account number on it. So we're trying to handle God's money that you give to our church prudently and above reproach. Praise the Lord that you give and praise the Lord that we can prayerfully and carefully administrate what you give. Well, that's the end of chapter 11. Next time, chapter 12, God willing, we'll start that and we'll see a jailbreak like very few jailbreaks in human history. And the title of the message for next Sunday is When Prayer Meeting Got Embarrassing. When Prayer Meeting Got Embarrassing. You could read Acts 12 to see why that is. Lord, thank you for this time, for the attention of your people, even though it's a little warm in here. Thank you that your word has gone forth. Now may we receive it and may it bear fruit in our lives. Thank you for being a warning God. Thank you for being a God of decency and doing things in good order. And thank you for a God of perfect remembering us. May we imperfectly remember the people who've helped us. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.